Now, our Father, what we want to do in these brief moments is to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds for receiving the bread and the cup this morning. We want to do it in a way that honors you, to be true to your word. It's inspired. It's of you. It's from you. It's for you. And so we want to take seriously what's here not allow for personal opinions to get in the way of God-inspired words. And so, Father, these are important moments as we consider not only what stands behind us in 2019, but what stands before us in 2020. As we review this past year and preview the coming year, we need to be in the ever-present yet. So, Father, these moments are yours. We're asking now that once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. So again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, you're going with me still on another journey. But this time, not to Israel, but to Greece. Because we're going to explore together this morning an island, a Greek island, the island of Patmos, which is stated in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, as the place where the Apostle John was exiled. Patmos. Look at what appears on the screen. Now, we make our way there, and it's about... Mm, 60 or so miles southwest of the setting of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. We're out on the Aegean Sea. Now, the Apostle John has stood strong for Jesus Christ, stood with Jesus Christ. We saw it at the crucifixion when even the courageous, bold man such as Peter fled. But Jesus Christ stayed at that cross with John and John stayed at the cross with Jesus. And you see this intense bond that's established between the two of them, the one that Jesus is known to have been viewed as, and this one who is the one beloved by the Lord, you see. But how much do you love me, God? I've been exiled. I stood up for Jesus. I stood alone for Jesus in this Roman Empire, so it seems. But now this emperor by the name of Domitian, he's heard about me, and he has now exiled me to this, this island, this Greek island, this island that's notorious for a setting where they exile criminals, as well as a setting for those who have revolted politically against the emperor Domitian. Where are you, God? Do you love me, God? Do you care about me, God? Maybe this morning you have felt somewhat isolated or challenged to stand strong for Jesus in the face of your own difficulties. But I want you to be thinking Potmus this morning and how the Apostle John was willing to even stand alone in order to stand for Jesus. Where is it? Well, look at the next scene. It's a map, you see. 
And here we are on the Aegean Sea. We have probably flown from Kennedy Airport to New York City, arrived in perhaps Athens, and then took a boat across the waters of the Aegean until you get to Patmos, you see. There we are. Now, what we find is that while John was on the Isle of Patmos, he didn't waste his time. No, he invested his time. There are seven churches on the land, in the land that we now know as Turkey. And there was this postal route, you see, in which the book of Revelation would make its way from starting in Ephesus, upward to Smyrna, over to Pergamum, then downward towards Thyatira, over to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Seven churches. All of this fits together in the strategy that, that John has utilized to organize his thoughts with regard to the way in which God is oper- operating, not only in that time, but for all times. But here we are. We're on the Isle of Patmos, you see. And what we want to do now, together as a group, is to explore perhaps the very setting where the book of Revelation was, was given. So look at the next scene that appears here. We've made our way in. I remember I was standing there with Benjamin, my son, off to the side, and we made our way forward. But this is a cave. This is a grotto. Grotto is simply a, a word for a cave. It's, a, it's an enclosed setting, a protective space, and most likely the sort of setting that, that the Apostle John would retreat to, even in bad weather. And it's commemorated on the Isle of Patmos as a setting in which the book of Revelation was given. There's long lines of people. It's not a big island. And they're swarming with people who want to get into that cave and take a good hard look at what had taken place there. And there we are. And you and I are pondering the significance of the book of Revelation. We're thinking about the richness that's found here. And now what we find, furthermore, is that there's a text of Scripture that needs to be unpacked, unfold for you and me, to better appreciate what it is that John received. So what I want to do with you this morning is to focus upon Jesus Christ and honor him for three reasons found in the text we're going to explore that helps us to better value and appreciate this one who's the sovereign God. So back to the text now that appears on the screen. And the first comes out of verse 4 down to the first part of verse 5. This you and I, as we review 2019 and preview 2020, Stay focused upon Christ. We're going to honor him, first of all, for who he is. For who he is. And if there is one word that I would use to capture the essence of what this is about, the word would be adoration. We are adoring him. This is what worship's all about. So here's John now set the scene. There is this emperor by the name of Domitian who wants complete dominion. You see how the words, the names, they fit together. But now the thing about Domitian that you need to understand is that it is AD 95. 
And in AD 95, while Domitian has just enlisted everybody in the Roman Empire to ascribe divinity to him, worshiping the emperor, which got the apostle John in a boatload of trouble, there is a conspiracy on its way in AD 95. While the book of Revelation is being given, for Domitian to be assassinated. And he will be the last of what's known as the Flavian emperors, a dynasty. A dynasty that will come to an end, but the dynasty of Jesus Christ continues without end, you see, which is what the book of Revelation is all about. So you've got to capture the essence of the fact that there's a conspiracy towards an assassination where dominion which was thought to be part of Domitian's realm, will be taken from him. You have got one who died as well, conspiracy, but three days later, raised from the dead, and his empire, his dominion, is everlasting. Do you see the powerful contrast unfolding here in these verses? Now, John, to the seven churches, we spotted them. Seven churches that are as we would put it in modern day, it's in Turkey, starting with Ephesus. Explored that together, my son, and uh, we were awed with what we saw here. Only about 10% of Ephesus thus far has been excavated. Someday we'll show you a picture. But seven churches total in Asia. And now what I want you to see, beginning at part where it says grace to you and peace, is that there is a threefold benediction. It's a Trinitarian benediction. A benediction that will come from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. Now, notice how this begins to unfold. Grace to you. It means God's unmerited favor toward you and me. We don't deserve salvation. Peace, not merely an outward peace, an inward peace. During the days of the emperors, there was a period known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. What we have to fully appreciate, though, is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Guards your heart, my heart, in Christ Jesus, as Paul would so now, with grace to you and peace offered to you, it comes from him. And now I want you to notice the threefold descriptive. Number one, who is? Now, there are about 400 allusions to the Older Testament found in the book of Revelation. To really understand the book of Revelation, You've got to spend an awful lot of time studying the book of Exodus, for example, where in verse 13 of Exodus 3, Moses, in his own exile experience in the wilderness, would say to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Ani said, say 
this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now you want to take, for example, Exodus chapter 3 at this point, and verses 13 and 14. Connect it now, what you've just read. Grace to you and peace from him who is. And then tie it together, who was. And then tie it together furthermore, and who is to come. Now what you've got is the wide expanse of this one whose dominion will not come to an end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. I love this. It came out of World Magazine. She's an extraordinarily gifted writer, Janie Shaney is. And she's pondering the various slogans she's heard for um, how to start a, a new year. Such as, quote, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Hmm. That was my intro, she said, to motivational slogans at the age of 19. It was a revelation. Hey, whatever bad habits I've collected, whatever sins I've slipped into, there's always a tomorrow. There's always a new start, a new resolution, a new opportunity to rise up from the ashes of defeat and so on. She goes on to say, however... Sometimes you just fritter away another day, binge-watching or gaming or eating too much or exercising too little, but then there's always still a tomorrow until, as, well, as Professor Harold Hill says in The Music Man, quote, you pile up enough tomorrows, you find you've collected a lot of empty yesterdays. Now, what the Apostle John wants to make absolutely certain of in your experience and my experience is that we don't major on the emptiness of life. We fill our lives with who matters most, Jesus Christ. There he is on the Isle of Potmos, and he's probably going to have to keep an eye over his shoulder, not knowing which criminal has also been put on that aisle that could be a threat to his own life. Yet, nonetheless, he's thinking about the one who died and three days later was brought back to life. That one we know is Jesus Christ. The one who is and who was and who is to come. But now you notice, because you're still in that section of verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And you say, Gary, you said that there's about 400 allusions in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament. You got another one for us? Do my best. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. This is masterful, the way John on the aisle is pulling together a wide range of biblical texts from the Old Testament to give perspective to his own difficult situation. Do you do that? Because in verse 2 of Isaiah 11, he said, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is where the Apostle John is drawing his perspective from. Now, what he's doing at this point is saying, Okay, seven churches. The idea is seven spirits. You say, But Gary, there is one Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, right? But what John is doing at this point is that he's going into his Old Testament, he's saying, here are seven operational ways by which 
The Holy Spirit is at work. And he's working in your life. He's working in my life. And so we see what God is doing. It's 1752. England went from the old Julian calendar to the new Gregorian calendar. In order to make it fit, 11 days had to be removed from the calendar. People went to bed on September 2nd, and they woke up the next morning. It was September 14th. There were riots in the streets. People said the government had stolen their days. Manage your days. Don't waste them. If you've got your own potmas, invest them. So now, operationally speaking, what he's saying here is the Holy Spirit is at work. Now, what I want you to notice is that there are three benedictions that are found in verse 4 and to the first part of verse 5. There's a benediction from God the Father, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. There's a benediction from the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven is the operational aspect, covering the basis of the seven churches. But now... Because we're dealing Trinitarian-wise, here's another benediction This from the second member of the Trinity, and from Jesus Christ. But notice with me now, there is a threefold distinctive. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, the faithful witness, and so he stood before Pontius Pilate, and there is this little debate going on regarding the whole matter of truth. What is truth? And Pilate simply dismisses truth as being irrelevant to what he's discussing and dealing with. But here is the one who is the truth and the faithful witness to truth standing before Pilate, sentenced to death. But not only is he the faithful witness... Well, you and I are also told, furthermore, he is the firstborn of the dead. Between services, a friend came up to me and said, Garth, what stands out to me is how we dealt with this text this morning about the whole matter of firstborn as compared to the first. Notice that it says firstborn of the dead. As I said in first, I say now, and I'll say in third, what about Lazarus? But you see, while Lazarus could be considered first, Lazarus, Lazarus was not the firstborn from the dead. Lazarus was raised to die. Jesus was raised to live. In your Older Testament, we are told these words, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. The idea of the firstborn carries with it the idea of preeminent position. It's a title that is given. It's not to be viewed chronologically. It's to be viewed positionally. I'll give you an example or two. Who was born first? Esau or Jacob? Answer, Esau. 
But who is called the firstborn? Not Esau, but Jacob. There's this incredible scene that unfolds in the next generation. Jacob now is about to give the blessing. He's now been renamed Israel. Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Jacob. Puts them before his father. Ephraim's on the right hand towards Israel's left hand. Manasseh on his left hand towards Israel's right hand. Brought them near. Israel stretched out his right hand, laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he did the blessing. What's going on? Ephraim was Joseph's second child, not first. But Jeremiah, in chapter 31, verse 9, recognized Ephraim as firstborn. Now, when you get to the New Testament, then, here's Jesus, the Messiah. And he described in Romans 8, verse 29, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Hebrews 1, 6, and of course, Revelation 1, 5 here, is the firstborn. So we covered this in first, we'll do it again in third, but it equips us for when your friendly Jehovah Witness appears at your door, typically in the midst of some football game, you're wanting to watch they ring the doorbell, and you come to the door, and they want to talk about, about, about Jesus. And they will tell you, you see, that he's created. He's not eternal. Because they argue that firstborn and first are, in other words, synonymous. And you say, but no, 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 wait a second here. What about Ephraim and Manasseh and the crossing of the arms? What about Jacob and Esau, generation before Fast forward it now to the Newer Testament, and therefore what we see is that this is not to be viewed chronologically. This is to be viewed positionally. He is not merely prominent. Jesus Christ is preeminent. Lazarus raised to die. Jesus raised to live. Christ, the firstborn, you see, of resurrection. Years ago when I spent a year in Cleveland, Ohio. Shah Veran came to the Cleveland Clinic. He was battling cancer. Shortly later, he would pass away. You know what his full title was? Shah in Shah, which means literally king of kings. Now, in the book of Revelation, what fascinates us is that Jesus Christ, the living one, is the king of kings. So you begin to pull all this together now, and there you have it, the first reason for focusing upon Christ. You're honoring him for who he is. Keyword, adoration. But now, a second reason for honoring him. Not only for who he is in, chapter, in verse 4 through the beginning of verse 5, but for what he has done in the second part of 5 and on into verse 6. And if the first reason, key word, was adoration, in the second reason, key word, is affirmation. We affirm in our testimony what Christ has done. So now notice how in verse 4, 
the threefold benediction comes from him, from the seven spirits, from Jesus Christ. Very Trinitarian. But while verse 4 deals with the from, verse 5 deals with the two. So grace comes from the Trinitarian God, and we in turn give all glory to the Trinitarian God. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. You see. Now do you see the threefold emphasis there? He loves us. That would have stirred John's heart on his Potmas experience because Jesus loved him. And John stood at the cross of Christ when everybody else fled. And furthermore, has freed us from our sins. Did you go see the movie Harriet? A couple of classic lines from the movie Harriet Tubman, who would free slaves in her era. One, I was the conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track. And I never lost a passenger. And then again, I crossed the line. I was free. But there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land. But if you read the biographies, there was Jesus, whom she loved. So now notice the threefold distinctive here. To him who loves us, number one, freed us from our sins by his blood, number two, which will commemorate with the taking of the cup in a few minutes. And number three, made us a kingdom priest to his, a kingdom priest to his God and Father. And that's taken from the book of Exodus of chapter 19, where we are called to be a kingdom priests, a priestly kingdom. And we're expanding the understanding of God's empire and who truly reigns. Domitian. Domitian was months away from assassination. He would reign but then die. Jesus Christ would die but still reign. It's to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And now, what you've done is you've honored him, first of all, for who he is. And second of all, you've honored him for what he has done. But now thirdly, you and I, we honor him for what he will do. So you pick it up in verse 7, and there's that visual word, behold, you're... You're finding John saying, in essence, hey, look, he's coming. He's coming with the clouds. And you say, I better get to, into my Older Testament and explore it all the more. There's endless allusions to the Older, to, to the older Testament as it relates to Revelation here. And in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And Revelation, evidently, is now 
being filled in the mindset of the Apostle John with Old Testament allusions. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And was, and was John reflecting upon Zechariah's writings? Even those who pierced him? But then in Zechariah chapter 12, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. See how this comes together? Isn't this astounding? you're looking at here so you're pulling that together all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen and now what does he do at this point well he knows his Greek I am the Alpha that's the first letter in the Greek alphabet the Omega that's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But what he does now is ties together the first and the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, John writes, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he used a triple form here to reinforce the idea that Jesus Christ, from beginning to end, reigns. So you worship him. You worship him for who he is. You worship him. You worship him for what he has done. You worship him. You worship him for what he will do. And if you worship him on the basis of adoration, and furthermore, on the basis of affirmation, then you also worship him on the basis of anticipation because you are awaiting his return. And it all comes together now in the threefold emphasis to God be the glory. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And so, Father, we're praising you and we're thanking you now for the extraordinary way within a few verses this man who has been exiled processes the way in which the God of the universe is broken into time via Jesus Christ. And while Domitian's days are numbered and his dynasty comes to an end, Jesus Christ reigns. His dynasty is forever. And for this we give you the praise in Jesus' name.